Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, this is Mark Graben. You're listening to episode number 42 of the Lean Blog Podcast for May 7th, 2008. Our guest today is Dr. Martin Hinckley of the firm Assured Quality, and we'll be talking about his book entitled Make No Mistake, an Outcome-Based Approach to Mistake-Proofing from Productivity Press. Dr. Inkley works quite a bit with a good friend of the podcast, Wendelin Galsworth, who will be featured once again in a new episode of the podcast in upcoming weeks. So I hope you will come back for that and other future episodes. Additionally, if you're interested in a webinar by Dr. Hinckley coming up on May 15th, 2008, you can register for that uh, via Gwendolyn's website at www.visualworkplace.com. As always, thanks for listening. Well, our guest today on the Lean Blog Podcast is Martin Hinckley. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Mark. It's a, I appreciate the invitation. Sure. I was wondering if you could start off by introducing yourself uh, to our audience. Uh, tell us about your, your background and your experience with Lean, and uh, also introduce uh, your book that we're going to be talking about today. Sure. Uh, for about 25 years, I worked at Sandia National Laboratories and was the lead engineer on some major uh, Department of Energy projects. Uh, I went back to school at Stanford. It was sponsored by Sandia. Mm -hmm. And while there, I was working with Professor Phil Barkin, who is a leader in design for manufacturability. And we were looking for the link between um, product design and overall quality and found that we couldn't find a single company that had been able to roll up statistics to predict defect rates in their mm -hmm. products. And uh, from this, we started to look for the things that would really make a difference in quality, found that there's a strong link between the complexity of the product and the defect rates. Mm -hmm. And from that, the only thing that we could conclude was that mistakes are really the driver behind most quality problems today. And this led to our the book that I wrote that is Make No Mistake that describes uh, techniques and methods for mistake proofing. So talking about complexity and mistakes and variation, um, how would you describe the difference between um, mistakes and, and variation um, in, in, in as being causes of defects? Sure. Um, let's see. The earliest change in quality, the one that was most significant is when Henry Ford's developed standard gauges, and that allowed us to detect differences in one product from another. And then in the 1920s, they identified variation as a cause of quality problems. Mm -hmm. uh, in every process, there's a distribution in how that task is performed. Now, if I take, for example, a hole drilling process, and I drill a hole, I can gauge that diameter of the hole and determine that, you know, sometimes it's smaller or larger than the nominal, right. and normally it's a bell-shaped type curve. The problem is a mistake is a probabilistic event instead of a statistical event. It, mm -hmm. it is something that occurs rarely. I may occasionally forget to drill a hole. I may occasionally use the wrong drill bit. Uh, I may occasionally um, uh, drill the hole in the wrong place or drill the hole partway through instead of penetrating all the way through the part, which I should. Mm 
And so these events occur, undetected mistakes occur about once in every 10,000 to once in every 100,000 operations. Uh, so they're very rare events, but the problem is that there's lots of mistakes that can occur. And the reason that they become so significant is as as our quality has improved, the, the problems resulting from variation have decreased, and now mistakes tend to be the most dominant uh, source of quality problems. A study by GE Aircraft Engines looked at all of the problems they had to respond to in the field that were not scheduled maintenance, mm-hmm. and over a multi-year study, they concluded that all but one problem was actually traceable to uh, mistakes. Only one problem could be traced to variation. Is, is it fair to say that when mistakes are so rare um, that inspection would be a ineffective method for detecting those because people maybe uh, come to expect that the mistake would not be made and, and, and they get lax in actually detecting a mistake? Well, it's, it's almost impossible to characterize mistakes through the traditional inspection method. Mm-hmm. The, the problem is, because mistakes are so rare, if you're doing sampling inspections of, say, one in a hundred parts, it, you would have to ha- sample a hundred million, you'd have to have a production process that produced a hundred million operations before you could characterize the frequency of one kind mm-hmm. of mistake. Mm-hmm. And so the result is most of our statistical methods are not giving us good information about mistakes. So even if we do all kinds of sampling inspections the traditional way, we never can control the mistakes. And that's why mistake proofing requires a totally different quality control. It requires a 100% check. Well, the reason we went to sampling inspection is to save money. And the key is that effective mistake proofing can actually be more cost effective than traditional inspections. Now, to illustrate with an example, if I had a process such as drilling a hole in a part, the traditional way would be I'd drill a bolt hole pattern and I'd take that and take it over to inspection and gauge the hole diameters and and then maybe two days later I'd get a report back when I've made a bunch of errors. The difference with mistake proofing is I would have a sensor that would look at the drill. It would look at it when it plunges through the body of the part to make sure it went through the right number of times. When I set up the part, it would, I couldn't start the machine until everything is in the right location. Um, it would count the number of, of drilling operations and I couldn't remove the part until it, it was done. And then I, and then I would have a counter on how many times the drill is used so that I, I have to replace that before it gets to a condition that would produce an out of tolerance part. Then I take the part off the machine and it's already inspected. I do not have any downstream inspection of that process. Mm-hmm. I know it's right, and I can do the process. I can execute the process a lot faster because I'm not rechecking all my work. Right. Uh, do, do you ever um, have discussions with people when you say doing error proofing can be less expensive than, than doing inspection? Um, if you have an environment where they're already doing inspection, um, do, do people ever hesitate thinking about the cost of setting up sensors or, or error-proofing devices or, you know, say things like, uh, well, it, you know, it's okay, I, I expect my people to be really careful or I have really skilled people who I know are careful. Um, I mean, how, do, do you get um, comments like that from people? And, and if so, how, how would you respond to somebody making that objection? 
Well, let's see. That's a, an excellent question, and uh, a lot of people have that kind of emotional response. Uh, the data doesn't support uh, support that view of of the world. The problem mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. that uh, all people, no matter how careful they are, and there are actually studies done by the Department of Energy that show that the error rates between the best and the worst of us are generally about a factor of two. They're not huge differences. And so we all make mistakes. Mm-hmm. It, it's almost impossible to control mistakes without that. And we know of companies, for example, that have delivered a million products and had a single defect in a million products uh, with mistake-proofing. What is interesting is properly implemented mistake-proofing makes the process easier instead of making it more difficult. And I'll just, uh, give you an example in the hospital environment where efforts to mistake-proof it have been done poorly and it results in a, almost a disaster. They use the medical carts uh, to deliver medicine now in some hospitals to patients. And the cart has to be attended at all times. Uh, they scan the barcode on the patient and then they scan the barcode on the medicine and the problem is that the nurse has to move the, the cart into the room where the patient is at. Right. And when they do that, uh, if they have an emergency in another room, they can't leave the cart with unlocked medication. Mm-hmm. So it creates a kind of an emergency and a disaster at the same time. Uh, so what is happening, a lot of times the nurses circumvent that by scanning a barcode in a book is not on the patient, and then get the medicines and take it into the room. Well, there's a case where the implementation has not addressed it in a way that makes the task easier. Good right. mistake proofing always makes the task easier. Right. So it, it doesn't create the uh, the incentive uh, to create workarounds or have to circumvent right. the process. And, yeah, you know, it, it's always fascinating to um, think about the hospital examples, I mean, that, that's an environment I've been working in and, and seen firsthand a, just a great need for error proofing. And, you know, my last question was kind of based upon some of the feedback I've gotten uh, from hospitals where, unfortunately, it seems like a lot of the um, focus on, on quality is on, you know, people being careful and, and asking and, and reminding people to, to double check and triple check. And it, and it seems in, in a lot of cases, much more inspection-based or, or based on this notion that people can be superhuman and, and just not make errors? Well, that's a very interesting observation, and it illustrates one of the most common errors in the concept of quality. A lot of times what we do is when we have a problem, we implement administrative controls. Mm-hmm. And the truth is that those administrative controls always make the task more complex. What we showed is that there's correlation between the complexity of the task and the number of errors. Now, administrative tools can shift the errors away from the task and more in the administrative area, but no matter what you do, as long as you make the task more complex, your error rate must go up. Mm-hmm. And so one of the most essential parts of good quality and good mistake proofing is, and a test for whether or not it's effective, is have you made the task easier? Um, and, and it's surprising how often we try to control behavior with administrative things and it doesn't work. It just doesn't. I wanted to ask you about the, uh, the, the phrase pokeyoke or pokeyoke. <laughs> I've here, I'm not, I'm not an expert on Japanese pronunciation, so maybe you can share what the correct pronunciation is. Um, and then 
what what that really means and, and what the the correct translation is supposed to be. Sure, uh, hoke yoke is uh, definitely Japanese. It's normally trans- translated as mistake proofing. The verb it comes from yokeru. Uh, I lived in Japan for a couple of years, but the um, the the mistranslation is that in Japanese there are many different levels of language. Um, if I want to speak honorifically, I use one form. If I want to speak to a friend, I use a different form of the verb. And if it's a command like a, gen- or would you please do it, I, I would say yokimasu. If it's a command like a general issue of the troop, that's the yokia version. Version, And what it means isn't that mistake-proofing is good. It is you must mistake-proof. It is a command. It's, it's a forceful command. And, and, and so how, how do you think that maybe gets misinterpreted at, at times other than being a forceful command, as you say? Right. A lot of times we have a casual view of mistake-proofing, and those that understand the problem realize that it takes action and it's expected. Mm. And when you say it, it, it must be done and, and it is necessary, um, can you give some examples of um, you know, the, the, the benefits from pokioke and, and mistake-proofing and um, how, how, that, how that compares to, to inspection or, or other types of quality control? Yes, uh, we worked with Motorola, and after they had been doing Six Sigmas for six years, so collected data from their companies, uh, which they were very gracious to support, and found that after six years of working with Six Sigma, that they were getting defect rates in the range of a thousand parts per million, which is a lot higher than the three parts per million that is projected for Six Sigma. Mm-hmm. Um, we found similar results in working with Texas Instruments and GE Aircraft Engines, who had also been aggressively applying Six Sigma, again, was not achieving defect rates anywhere near the level that they that they wanted. Uh, out of this study, Motorola was persuaded to try mistake-proofing on and on their very next product, production line, they were able to get defect rates down to 100 parts per million, a tenfold improvement in terms of their quality. Now, um, in terms of in terms of cost, there's three ways that we approach controlling mistakes. The first is to simplify. Most processes and products, the complexity of them can be cut in half with very simple kinds of methods. Uh, Lean is one of the tools, for example, for sim- simplifying a process, but you can mm-hmm. obtain generally the same kind of improvement in in simplifying products and the tools and the equipment. The second thing, and that eliminates the opportunity to commit a mistake. I can't do something wrong because that task is just eliminated. The second part is mistake-proofing, which controls the errors. But the third, and one of the things that I don't think very many people appreciate, is that most of the variation problems are coming from adjustments. And a technique developed in Japan called single-minute exchange of dyes looks at converting adjustments to settings. And that will eliminate uh, 98% of the setup errors and virtually eliminate all of the adjustment errors. So when the Six Sigma groups were studying the Japanese, they found that they had less variation in the process and assumed that they were doing it with statistical methods. 
The truth is they had less variation, but mm. they were doing it with these single-minute exchange of values methods, which are much easier. It eliminates all of the data collection and a much simpler process. What, what, what is your experience when in error-proofing processes? I mean, a lot of times we think about um, physical error-proofing, um, de- devices and sensors and uh, the, the physical design of products so they can't be assembled incorrectly. Um, but can, can you share some examples maybe of um, error-proofing processes or things that are less dependent on, you know, the physical fit or... Uh, Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Uh, I was in a hospital one time, and I watched a nurse who was uh, changing a catheter. Mm-hmm. Uh, the supplies were on the other side of the of the building, and she started the process, and three times during the insertion of the catheter made an error in the process and went and got a new kit. Now, maybe she wouldn't have done that if I hadn't been standing there, but, <laughs> uh, but nevertheless, she did. And every time she went to get a new uh, set of material, it took five minutes. Well, the right kind of solution is to organize the kit so that I can only draw the right material in the right order to insert the catheter. There are ways, um, for example, a problem with catheters is they're not removed at the proper time. If you leave them in too long, they result in a uh, they can result in a nosocomial infection. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, there's no way to look at a catheter and know how long it's been inserted or a, the tubing. Right. You know, a, a simple timer on them that mm-hmm. starts when I start the process would um, would help with that kind of problem. So many times there's very, very simple things that could be done that in even generalized processes would help mistake proof that. Sure. So I was wondering if you could tell our listeners a little bit about the structure of your book, which, again, is called Make No Mistake, an Outcome-Based Approach to Mistake-Proofing. Um, there, there, there must be at least a, a couple hundred wonderful single-page examples and many case studies uh, of different error-proofing applications. Um, then the front of the book um, has, has a nice introduction to the subject. Um, I was wondering if you could talk about you know, how, how the book is structured and, and how you think it's... Um, you know, uh, what, what makes it a, a, a unique book on the subject of error-proofing and mistake-proofing? Thank you. You bet. Uh, the problem with mistake-proofing, the biggest challenge is that is not the way that we approach problem-solving. Our background and history as a nation and a society is based on the variation paradigm. Mm-hmm. And mistake-proofing is a skill. It's kind of like playing chess. You get better by doing it. Unfortunately, because the examples that we have are scattered and distributed among a wide range of uh, locations, it's really hard to find an example that's relevant to and helps us solve our problems. Mm -hmm. Uh, If we want to find a relevant example or principles that may help us solve them, we have to search through large catalogs and, and they're not organized to help us find them. So what we have done has developed a classification scheme, a way of organizing examples in ways that help me find relevant uh, solutions in ways that I may not have thought of if I hadn't had that kind of structure. Mm-hmm. For example, an omitted part is the same kind of problem if I'm in an operation in the hospital as it is in a in assembling an automobile in an automotive plant. And the techniques that prevent omitted parts 
are the same in a hospital environment as they are in a in a um, automotive plant. Right. But but the examples, if I show folks in automotive examples, they have a difficult time oftentimes translating that into their environment. So what we've done is reduced it to a set of principles for each type of problem, and then the examples are formed in a catalog. The introduction is there to guide people into the method. Uh, we think, however, that the best approach is for each organization to begin to prepare their own database of examples, mm-hmm. things that people can share. So we're developing some software that will help companies create their own proprietary database. It will track every quality problem in the organization, and it will put them in this very simple one-page format before and after so they can see what's done and how it relates to their work. That's an interesting idea, and I would imagine even in certain industries where um, organizations tend to cooperate, such as within the healthcare, there might be opportunities even to create industry-wide databases that people could reference and, and share. Huh. Mm-hmm. And is, is that software, um, is that something that's web-based or, or something that could be used across kind of a distributed organization? The the way that we're developing it is the intent is to make it a web-based within the company. We'll also have uh, offer that with a smaller set of examples on the web so people can contribute to uh, contribute non-proprietary examples uh, and and find examples that might help them. Mm-hmm. And and so is that software being developed by your organization? Yeah, assured quality. Can can you tell the listeners a little bit about um, about your firm and the, the the type of consulting work you do and how people might be able to get in touch with you if they're um, interested in working with you? Sure. Thank you. Uh, let's see. Um, I am president of Assured Quality, and we have a website that is Assured Quality, no spaces uh, or punctuation in between, uh, assuredquality.com, mm-hmm. and they can reach us uh, through that route. I'm also affiliated with uh, QMI's Visual Lean Institute, and they could contact me through that uh, website, and then that's a dash between the Visual Lean uh, Institute. Uh, so there's a number of ways that they can reach us, and, and Assured Quality is the one that is developed. We are developing the software. Well, great. And um, listeners to the podcast might recognize Visual Lean Institute uh, and Gwendolyn Galsworth, who uh, has been on here talking about uh, visual visuality and uh, visual management, and she'll be back again um, in a future podcast. So, Martin, I want to I thank you for um, joining us today. I know we were just able to scratch the surface um, on the topic of mistake proofing, but you know, I definitely like to uh, recommend uh, the the book to uh, folks who are interested in learning more. They they can order that, I imagine, through Productivity Press or through uh, Amazon and other bookstores. Correct. Uh, I think I don't know that Amazon handles the Productivity books, but definitely through Productivity Press. Okay. Well, great. Well, it was a pleasure having you uh, on um, on the podcast today, and hopefully, we can uh, have you back on if there's. Um, questions from the listeners or or other topics that people uh, might want to learn more about. Thank you so much, Mark. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you.
Hey, podcast listeners, I'm excited to announce the release of the audiobook version of my new book, The Mistakes That Make Us, Cultivating a Culture of Learning and Innovation. Listen and dive into powerful insights on fostering growth through mistakes. Whether you're a leader, entrepreneur, or just trying to get better at learning from mistakes, this audiobook is for you. Get it now on Audible, Amazon, and Apple Books. Visit mistakesbook.com for more info.